Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome. It's exciting to see so many new faces here tonight. In the history of this Discord group, you know, TUC Live, our Diaspora of Yasharel, I don't recall seeing so many new faces in the crowd in one week. So a bunch of you know, new names, new people coming in. And um, I just love meeting all the new truth seekers. Welcome, everybody. And I want to remind everybody listening that we do record every Sabbath. Uh, at this time, it is, uh, I, I hate to say the time because, you know, six months from now, it might be a different time. But, you know, who knows who's going to be listening to this video when, but it's generally 7 p.m. on Sabbath. So everyone is welcome to come by. And I hope everyone had a a restful Sabbath today. I have a confession to make. I have made this confession in the ba- in the past, but I am wearing the same clothing that I went to sleep in last night. That that is how restful my Sabbath was. Uh, it was just delightful to stay home, not go anywhere, uh, just read the word, uh, hold my baby Rifka in my arms, and I was actually a little bit. Um, uh, upset today because Rivka decided to sleep all afternoon and I was missing her and I wanted to hold her. I was tempted to go up to like her uh, bassinet and kind of like accidentally bump it, you know, oops. And she starts crying. Oh, I got to pick you up and hold you. But I let her sleep. Anyways, the current series that we are in right now is Paul's epistle to the Romans, according to the Torah. Now there has been a lot of misunderstanding uh, as to what I've been saying in this series, and uh, some people have understood a little too well. And what I mean by that is that there's been, since I've started the series, uh, this is our third week, and even before that, when I did a couple of videos on what I called Paul on Trial, my my intent was to show that Paul's entire worldview was the Torah. In fact, he had no other worldview. He could not possibly have had another worldview. And either he was uh, advocating for the Torah or pushing away from it or doing away with it. And since that time, I've had a lot of angry people. Now, it's not my intent to anger people. It's not my intent to just say controversial things for the, for the sake of it. But you guys know me. I kind of just... Uh, go ahead and charge into something. And I've gotten a lot of really, you know, nasty notes over this. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, a lot, Paul, just upsets a lot of people. Um, and particularly in Christianity, I think most of it has stemmed from there. The idea that uh, the, the book of Romans, Paul was using the Torah as the standard of his morality. And I have been showing the first two chapters that there is no there is no time ever that he ever did away with the Torah. He never canceled anything. He never did away with anything. He kept re- referring to it over and over again. And in fact, uh, his entire argument so far now he does shift his audience, you know, who he addresses throughout. But his entire audience for definitely chapter two, m- most of uh, chapter one, and uh, the bulk of chapter three has been to the Jews. And if he had done away with the Torah. He would have no argument with them. There would be there'd be nothing. They'd be like, well, you did away with it, you're done, right? And what he is showing, we're gonna see it again. If you hopefully everyone has been following uh, chapter one, chapter two, and I am showing how he is demonstrating that the Torah is the truth. And um and he's you know obviously encouraging the Christians to come in to take it up as well. All right now, very fitting to the discussion at hand is a passage from Matthew chapter 5, verses 
17 through 20. So I'm going to write this in here, and then we'll read it together before we get to our study. And you guys have probably heard this a, a, many, many times. It is an amazing passage. I love it. So let's go over it really quickly. This is what Yahusha is saying. Do not think that I came to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to complete, or you could say fulfill. And this is this is the funny thing about this, because he says it three times. Yahusha knows that you're going to forget. So he tells you what not to think. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the Torah. And he knows that you're going to forget this. So he says, he repeats, he says, uh, I, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then Christians will go, aha, he came to fulfill. He did away with it. And it's just, it's, it's mind boggling. It just, it's absolutely, uh, it's absolutely mind boggling. Okay, let's keep reading. For truly, I say to you, till the heaven and the earth pass away, one yod or one jit, uh, tittle, uh, you could say one jot or one tittle, shall by no means pass from the Torah till all be done. And so you, at this very moment, according to his words, people will say, oh, well, no, he's speaking to a Jewish audience and, you know, it's been done away with since. Well, if you can go look at your window, I encourage everyone right now. Uh, I'm on the East Coast. The sun hasn't gone down yet. So open up your window. And if you can see the heaven and the earth, even at nighttime, if you can see the stars, if you can see the heaven and the earth, according to Yahusha, the Torah has not been done away with. All right, let's keep reading. Whoever then breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches men so shall be called least in the reign of the heavens. That, that should terrify everyone. I'm going to, um, that should, yeah, that should tell, um, excuse me, I'm tripping over my own words tonight. That should terrify all of us. And this is, this is where Paul comes in. Paul is not an excuse to this rule. If Paul teaches anyone to break a single command, then according to Yahushua, he shall be the least in the kingdom. Yes, Paul. That includes all of us as well. If we break the commands and teach others to do the same, even the least, that is, the Torah is our measuring stick for morality. Uh, it, you know, it is righteousness, you know, the measuring stick for righteousness. Let's keep reading. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the reign of the heavens. Now, I have to admit, I, I want to go for the goal. I, 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 I do. I want to get the prize. And when I understood this, I'm like, yeah, I want, <laughs> that's what I want to teach. He said, if you teach others to obey the Torah, uh, you'll be called great. So you guys know, according to Yahusha, how you can be great in the kingdom. Go teach others to obey it. If you want to be least, go ahead and tell people to break it. Go ahead. That's what he said. He gives you permission. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall by no means enter into the reign of the heavens. And right there, that, that encapsulates Romans chapter 2 and 3 perfectly well, because the audience is the perishim. Uh, Paul used to be one of them. All right, before we start tonight, oh, I just realized I did not drop the PDF into the room, and I apologize for that. Let me get that up. Josh, I don't even know if you have it, so I might have to give you guys a minute here to pull it up. There you go. 
So we are on chapter three. I don't think I put in a, a table of contents yet where you can just whip right to it. But for reference, we are on page 53. Now, if you notice at the beginning, I put in a couple scripture passages that I feel kind of en encapsulates the book of Romans. What I just read from Matthew 5 perfectly encapsulates it. But here's two more. This one comes from Exodus chapter 12, verses 49 through 50. We will be covering this tonight. And it says, One Torah shall be to him that is homeborn, and unto the stranger that sojourns among you. I should have given you a reference. I'm on page three. Thus did all the children of Yasharel, as Yahuwah commanded Moshe and Aaron, so did they. And that tells us that there is only one Torah. There's not two. There's not three. And that this one Torah it's for the homeborn as well as the sojourner, and it's for all times. The next one comes from Psalms 105.8. I love this one. It says, he has remembered his covenant forever. Who is he? It's Yahuwah. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations. All right, so let's go ahead, and we are on chapter 3, verse page 53. I am going to start out by reading the entire chapter. Here we go. And then we'll dissect it verse by verse. What advantage then has the Yahudi? What profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the words of Elohim. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of Elohim without effect? Never. Yea, let Elohim be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you might be justified in your sayings and might overcome when you are judged. But if our, un but if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of Elohim, what shall we say? Is Elohim unrighteous who takes vengeance? I speak as a man. Never. For then how shall Elohim judge the world? For if the truth of Elohim has more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil, that good may come? Whose damnation is just? What then, are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Yahudim and the other nations that they are all under sin. For it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after Elohim. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is of their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of Elohim before their eyes. Do we not know that whatsoever the law says in the Torah, it speaks in order that all mouths are stopped and condemns? It does so in all the world by Yahuwah. Therefore, by the works of the law, no flesh is justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of Elohim without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the Torah and the prophets. 
even the righteousness of Elohim, which is by faith in Yahushua HaMashiach, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of Elohim, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Mashiach Yahushua, whom Elohim has set forth to be a propitiation, uh, propiti propiti <laughs> propitiation, too many syllables for me, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of Elohim, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which is in the faith of Yahushua HaMashiach. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the works of the law. Is he the Elohim of the Yahudim only? Is he not also of the other nations? Yes, of the other nations also. Seeing it is one Elohim which shall justify the circumcision by faith and un uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the Torah by faith? Never. Yea, we establish the Torah. All right, and that concludes the reading of Romans chapter 3. Let's dig right into it. So here we see on page 53, verses 1 and 2, and I'll read those again really quickly. What advantage then has the Yehudi? Those are, of course, the Jews. Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that into them were committed the words of Elohim. Already we're off to a good start, a very good start indeed. Paul and I have something in common, apparently. We both like to anticipate our audience's rebuttal. And if nothing else, we often have a hearty agreement argument with the self. You see, after leveling the playing field and demonstrating the obvious that Elohim shows no favoritism towards the Yehudi or the Goyim, where the heart is concerned, you have to refer back to chapter 2, Paul is the one jumping ahead of what you're probably already thinking so as to answer the hard questions. To this day, many theologians are not happy with his response. Some have even accused Paul of showing a biased favoritism towards the Perishim, those would be the Pharisees, claiming that he couldn't let go of his nationalist indoctrination no matter how hard he tried. And these are Christian theologians, mind you. That's what education is good for, you know. Despite appearances, Paul is 100% correct, though. To disregard his worldview that the words of Elohim were entrusted to his people is to wear blinders throughout the entire Tanakh. That would be the Old Testament. Pick any page in the Bible and show me where the surrounding nations had the greater revelation. Am I to believe Yahuwah employed oracles of salvation to the Egyptians and the Babylonians? How about Delphi? Are Pythagoras and Zoroaster two of them? Some will say yes. You won't find that answer in the Tanakh, though. If Elohim did raise up prophets, they weren't set apart or righteous without the Torah as their guide. Some translations say oracles of Elohim rather than words of. Same difference. Notice, though, that Paul doesn't specifically separate the ten words given on Sinai from the rest. Christians do all the time, supposing they intend to remain in the outer courts of the Goy. They'll often claim only the Ten Commandments were intended for them. And that more specifically, nine still apply, seeing as how the fourth commandment has conveniently been done away with, according to their pastor. Haven't you heard? The seventh day Sabbath is so Jewish sounding. Be it as that may, 
Paul makes no separation whatsoever. The words or the oracles of Elohim include the Torah as well as the divine utterances in the Tanakh. There were there was no other scripture in Paul's day, as we've already established. The whole of scripture was entrusted to the Yahudim, really the 12 tribes of Israel. And at the risk of shattering the illusion, Paul was one of them. There is no severing from Sinai being committed to here. Clearly, Yahuwah had chosen Yashorel as a subpart nation from the other 70. The truth of salvation wasn't simply delivered to them either. The surrounding nations were always welcome to be part of it. The Torah tells us so. Let's follow Paul's choo-choo train of logic, shall we? And this is what we started with tonight, Exodus 12, verses 49 through 50. One Torah shall be to him that is homeborn and unto the stranger that sojourns among you. Thus did all the children of Yasharel as Yahuwah commanded Moshe and Aaron, so did they. Yahuwah said there were many Torahs to accommodate the various nations, right? Right? I should have mentioned this earlier. Torah simply means teaching, instruction, or doctrine. So what Yahuwah is saying is that there is only one teaching, one instruction, and one doctrine between him and the children of Yasharel. There would never be any other revealed doctrine, just one. Oh, certainly there would be many doctrines of men in the generations to follow, both in Yasharel and in the surrounding nations, but none of those would originate from the Most High. And as you can see, the same rule applies for the sojourner. If the surrounding nations wanted to encounter Yahuwah Elohika, then they were welcome to do so, so long as they agreed to his greater revelation, which can be found in the Torah. There were others, you know. All you have to do is read a little earlier in the chapter to learn that many Goyim recognized Yahuwah as the Most High Elohim and chose to leave everything behind, including their pantheon of Elohim, in order to follow the fiery pillar to Sinai. And this is what we read. And a mixed multitude went up also with them. Exodus 12, 38. The mixed multitude is describing people groups other than the sons of Yaakov. Egyptians for sure, but very likely there were any number of representatives from the 70 nations among them. And so try not to overlook the sleight of hand in Exodus 12.50. After entrusting the Torah to the home-born as well as to the sojourner, it then says, Thus did all the children of Yasharel. Relating the children of Yasharel to the all in their midst could not possibly be referring to the goyim sojourn sojourning with them, Right? They maintained a separate identity with completely different denominational doctrines, right? I said, right? Sometimes the truth stings a little. My mother used to tell me it's best to rip the Band-Aid off quickly. That's the best policy. Steamroll right through the pain. Even then, the surrounding nations were grafted in. All right. Romans 3. Three through four. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of Elohim without effect? Never. Yea, let Elohim be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you might be justified in your sayings and might overcome when you are judged. Paul then raises another question which he anticipates of his reader. He does that a lot, and also which he pur purposes to answer. The question is whether or not Elohim's faithfulness is brought into question when faced with Yashorel's long-standing history of unbelief. 
especially in light of the outright rejection of Yahushua HaMashiach as their king and high priest by the Yahudim. The fact that they had delivered up their bridegroom to crucifixion presents a rather awkward predicament. The question was surely already being asked. Was Elohim done away? Was I'm sorry, was Elohim done with the story of Yasharel? If judgment was coming as Yahushua had prophesied for that generation, and now which Paul had likewise promised, had Elohim given up on his set-apart people in favor of the surrounding nations? The answer is a resounding no, never. Translations differ between not at all, of course not, by no means, or may it never be. They're all based upon the same Greek letters, uh, me genoito, and often include an exclamation mark for a purpose. I checked. That same phrase can be found in 10 different instances throughout his epistle to the Romans. 3.3, 3.6, 3.31, 3.3, 3.6, so that's three in this chapter alone, 6.2, 6.15, 7.7, 7.13, 9.14, 11.1, and 11.11. And we shall come to, as we shall come to find, Paul uses the never expression to emphasize the total impossibility of such a proposal. The best remedy to the conflict at, at hand was to begin with the premise that Elohim is true and that every man is a liar. Legit. If only every educational textbook, political discussion, religious institution, discovery of science, historical claim, and media outlet began and ended with Paul's own platform for debate. Lies would then be exposed inside and outside of every imaginable angle. Societies we knew it could not exist. It boggles the mind. Indeed, I am in danger of frying my brain when pausing to ponder let alone comprehend the dizzying loyalty which so-called Bible believers place upon the establishment of men and in all conceivable mediums, rather than the words of Elohim. It is a problem now just as it was then, but let's not get distracted from the argument at hand. Though it is true as a rule that man would constantly rebel against the righteous instructions of Elohim, the Most High will never break his covenant nor back down on his word. Again, I say legit. Consider the psalmist. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once have I uh, sworn, I guess that should be sworn, it says sword. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. So, uh, Psalms 89, 34-37. The writer of Psalms 89 attaches the promise of David's endearing throne to the covenant he had earlier made, as nothing which has proceeded from his lips will be altered. That's messianic right there. Yahushua cannot be severed from the Torah. The problem with the Yahudim is that they rebelled against the Son because they, had al- they already did not believe the words of Elohim. The same can be said of many Christians, not all, but many. They also rebel against the Son because they do not believe the words of Elohim. It's a wonder that they don't get better along with the Jews. The insanity goes on and on. By the way, Paul's quote is another Psalm's reference. It comes from Psalm 51 and reads, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you might be justified when you speak. 
and be clear when you judge. That comes from Psalm 51.4. Psalm 51 was a classic, a noted read amongst his audience. It represents David's admission of guilt regarding his transgression against. He had murdered Uriah in order to cover up the sin of adultery with his woman, Bathsheba. Given the context before us, Paul employed David's open confession to reinforce the reality that Elohim is set apart, assuring us that his judgments are always blameless. He certainly didn't turn a blind eye to Yashorel's King David. The defining difference between David and the Yahudim as a whole is that he confessed his sin, repented of his wrong, and accepted the punishment coming to him. Contrarily, it is difficult convincing anyone who finds the Torah too burdensome to be bothered with that. Excuse me, to be bothered that they, with the idea at least, that they had done any wrong in transgressing it. That's what unbelief does. It identifies a hardened heart, potentially with a circumcised penis. It, you know, it, ne- <laughs> it never occurred to me how much like almost all the pages that fill up the New Testament, they talk about the penis a lot. It's it's just like the it's the the point of debate. So hopefully you guys, you know, if there's anyone out there is like, he said that word again. I'm so upset. Uh, it's <laughs> it's it's like all throughout his letters. It's everywhere. So apparently that was a big deal in, in Judaism in the first century. All right. Romans three. Five through six. But if our unrighteousness command the righteousness of Elohim, what shall we say? Is Elohim unrighteous who takes vengeance? I speak as a man, never. For then, how shall Elohim judge the world? When Paul says he speaks as a man in this instance, he is reminding us that a human argument is being given. That should be evidence in that another rebuttal, which he yet again anticipates of his audience, has been scribbled onto the page. The narrative which his critics appear to be spinning may be a sarcastic one, if not desperate. They are potentially claiming Yasharil's unbelief is actually a good thing because their rebellion against his word contrasts Elohim's righteousness and justice. And seeing as how he will never back down upon his word, it furthermore beckons the question in a rather circular fashion. Why would Elohim punish his own people for something that actually works in his own favor? That would make Elohim unrighteous. Should he be a respecter of persons? And as we have already seen, he isn't a respecter of persons, that is. Therefore, Paul tells his Yahudim audience, anyone who thinks otherwise disagrees with the divine revelation given in Scripture and dictates doctrine as a mortal person. Ouch. Tell us how you really feel. Now, if you guys are a little confused by that, we went over in uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 how... The, the Yahudim had this idea that they could preach to the, the Goyim about how sinful they are, and they really needed worry themselves about uh, sinning because they believed that they would all be saved. All of Israel would be saved. And it was a very hypocritical view because they're now setting up a system that makes it almost impossible, a heavy burden for the Goyim to come in, and they don't really want the Goyim to come in. I mean, they, they're jealous. They see all these nations streaming in because of Messiah, the very guy they killed, and they're, they're you know, ha- having a cow over the entire um, incident. Paul's attitude is that if you actually think this way, 
that your obstinate sin promotes the good in Yahuwah's insistence to favor you over everyone else, then you deserve to be punished on the day of judgment. Yes, he is speaking to the Yahudim who claim their genetics as well as their circumcision qualifies them. But on the other hand, the same argument can be used for many Christians who believe they are free to transgress Torah and Yahuwah uh, and who believe that they are free to transgress Torah and Yahuwah will be okay with it. I did write that sentence right, but I was imagining something else in my head. It's amazing how I trip over my own words so much. Because their sin further promotes his abundance of grace or whatever. Believe me, they're out there. There's a denomination for everything. Remember now, Paul has already defined a true Yahudim as one who is circumcised within. The hope is that a circumcised heart will lead that same someone towards obedience to the commands, which furthermore insinuates becoming circumcised without. Otherwise, they too deserve to be judged unrighteously if their hardened hearts are storing up wrath rather than treasures in heaven. Those are Paul's words. Romans 3, 7 through 8. For if the truth of Elohim has more abounded through my lie into his glory, uh-oh, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come whose damnation is just. Many, it seems, had accused Paul as being a liar. There were very, they were very unlikely a synagogue in the Yehudi world where somebody didn't stand up with an erected finger and claim, liar, whenever he entered. I was thinking of that scene in The Princess Bride where the, that lady's like, liar! That is one of the central story arches of Dr. Lucas's writing in the Book of Acts. The Yahudim were following him around, claiming that he was doing away with the writings of Moshe. They said the same thing about Stephen, that he had, in fact, done away with the Torah, just as Messiah had, and then stoned him for it. In every instance, Lucas assures his reader that neither Stephen nor Paul, and certainly not Messiah, had done away with the Torah. And we started out reading from that passage in Matthew chapter 5, where he said the same thing. And in fact, all of their claims amounted to false testimony. In actuality, the Yahudim were the ones lying, and they would be judged for it. Rather tragically, the same lie continues to this very day. Christianity teaches that he did sever humanity from the law, and what is worse, they praise him for it. The irony is that they are falling in agreement with the very people who had Yahusha HaMashiach hung from a tree. It's actually pretty tragic. Evidently, Paul was being judged by the Yahudim as a sinner. That's the same thing as saying a transgressor of the Torah. But Paul was the worst kind of transgressor, as accusations go, because he was accused of taking the Torah to the lumber mill. If you're paying attention then, what Paul is doing is returning their own argument back on themselves. The deductive reasoning goes as follows. One. If you're a Yahudim based upon your circumcision and therefore claim Elohim will glorify rather than judge you for your transgression, then two, if I'm a Yahudim and circumcised and as many slanderers claim, going about telling people that Elohim will glorify us for a transgression, then three, how can you judge me for the very thing that Elohim won't judge you for? You see, he has turned the tables. It is they who have done away with the Torah, not Paul. There's an added context to this. 
because Paul had in fact betrayed his own contemporaries, the Parashim, when actively hacking away at their rabbinical traditions. There is a word for their teachings, uh, halakha. Hopefully I pronounced that right. Probably has more of like a throaty, like a to it. It literally means the way. That tripped me out when I first saw it. What it refers to, though, is the totality of additional laws and ordinances which have evolved into Moshe's delivery, all of which is expected to be observed as part of the daily and religious conduct of the Jewish people. Halakha is what Yahusha referred to when criticizing the temple controllers. He said, and he said unto them, Full will ye reject the commandments of Elohim that ye may guard your own tradition. The Gospel of Mac, Mark 7, 9. Yahusha's criticism, man, I'm just choking up on my words tonight. I need a drink of coffee. Yahusha's criticism of the Parashim wasn't that they were obeying the Torah, as some people claim. Don't be ridiculous. I get that all the time, though. People say he's criticizing for, you know, obeying the Torah too much. That's just absurd. The Torah instructs us to guard the commandments of Elohim. Yahushua took no issue with his father in heaven. Rather, he was criticizing them for rejecting the commands, chucking them to the garbage heap, really, when guarding their own traditions, the doctrines of men. You can only imagine the swarm of wasp, then, when Yahushua claimed to be the way. In turn, his murderers accused him of being the one who did away with the Torah when refusing to recognize their way. Romans 3, 9. What then, are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Yahudim and the other nations that they are all under sin. Returning now to his question, which began this chapter, what advantage then has the Yahudi and what profit is there of circumcision? Paul is saying that there is much advantage, but also none whatsoever. Correction. None if the Yahudim forsake the words of Elohim and the oracles entrusted to them, thereby making their circumcision a matter of uncircumcision. What good is there in being the morally superior and set-apart people if they refuse to take part in the very righteousness they boast of? Might as well be a goy. Which brings up his next point. Romans 2, 10-12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after Elohim. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. Paul is citing both Psalms 14 and 53, and in the past, uh, I criticize him for it. I have come to learn over the course of this study, however, that the criticism should be exclusively reserved for those who twist scripture in favor of lawlessness rather than what Paul is ultimately getting at. No, he is not actually saying there is none who are righteous. You will claim I am not reading the words directly in front of me when in fact Paul did say there is none righteous, and thus, I am in denial of reality. Hold your horses then. I figure in moments such as these, it would probably be a good thing to rehearse the actual source which Paul is quoting from, just to ensure we're understanding it right, and then reconvene afterwards. So as you can see here, I laid out Psalms 4, uh, 14, 1 through 3, and 53, 1 through 3, and they're almost identical. There's a few words that are different, but let's go ahead and let's see. I'll read um, Psalms 14, 1 through 3. It's like two words longer. The fool has said in his heart, there is no Yahuwah. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. 
there is none that does good. Yahuwah looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek Yahuwah. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that does good. No, not one. As you can see, both passages are nearly identical. The context of each parallel psalm has David observing the fool who says in his heart, there is no Elohim. Contextually, David cannot possibly be calling everyone a fool, as his qualification has already been defined for us. In the same way, it can truly be said that not everyone is unrighteous. You can't claim there is no good fruit to be had. And even if good works are exclusively relegated to the Ruach HaKodesh, then again, you can't say that no one is righteous, no, not one. And so why is Paul claiming there are none who are righteous? It doesn't seem possible that he would, which is why context is golden. In the New Testament alone, there are 12 persons that I can find. Now, there might be more, but this is what I found, who are personally named as being righteous. The first two are obvious. Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim, is named as righteous in Yochanan 17.25. Likewise, Yahusha, his son, is named righteous in various places. I'll get to those. I figure it's best, to, uh, best, though, to come up with a chart because everybody loves a good visual illustration to help th uh, through their day. So here you go. So as you can see on the left, we have Elohim, Yahusha, Lot, Yosef of Arimathea, uh, Havel, that's the same as Abel, uh, Yosef, father of Yahusha, Cornelius, Yochanan, the Immerser, uh, Zechariah, um, Elizabeth, uh, that's her name, El Elishiva, which I think is a beautiful name in itself, and Shimon or Simon. There are others in the Tanakh who are deemed righteous, namely Noah. If I, choose, if I chose to snub him, it's because I'm specifically keeping to quote-unquote Christian references, which would be the New Testament. Hopefully, you will notice a curious trend. Nearly every person mentioned derives from the writings of Lucas, who also happened to be Paul's biographer. Only Matthew names another righteous figure, Yosef. Everyone else derives from Lucas. And so clearly, Paul is not against righteous persons. If anything, he believes them to exist, though likely few in number when comparing the wide road of existence with the narrow. Indeed, there are righteous. We have already been over the requirements of a righteous person. That would be in uh, chapter 1 or chapter 2. Uh, chapter 1, I believe. Those who conform to the Torah, repenting of their transgressions. The table turning continues, obviously. What Paul is doing is saying the Yahudim are the ones who do not believe and are thus the fools. It took me a while to see that. They are the ones who don't believe the claim being made in Psalms, that Yahuwah looks down upon everyone and doesn't like what he sees. Mainly, the Yahudim have become the fools who say in their heart, there is no Yahuwah. If they had believed, then at the very least, they would have treated the Torah as an introspective tool for the refiner's fire, rather than standing on a soapbox and spouting off their own doctrines. Had their hearts been truly circumcised by Yahuwah, then they would have recognized Yahusha as their righteous Messiah. They may think they are righteous, but they are counted as no better than the Goyim in their rejection of the Torah and of the Mashiach. They don't even believe in the coming judgment as it pertains to them, which we saw in chapter 2. Or chapter 1. It's certainly difficult to say they believe Yahuwah is Elohim then. The fools have been pinpointed. Romans 3.13 Their throat is an open sepulcher. 
With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is of their lips. To the untrained eye, Paul's next quote derives from the same source. Turns out he likes to jump around a lot, but then bleed them into one seamless passage, which was a very um, rabbinical thing to do at the time. Probably because his best defense, which the lawlessness of his own people, um, let, me, let me state that again. Probably because his best defense against the lawlessness of his own people is to throw the very scripture which they boast of right back at them. He is now quoting from Psalm 5, and here is what it says. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy, and in your fear will I worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Yahuwah, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy them, O Elohim. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those that put their trust in you rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because you defend them. Let them also that love your name be joyful in you. For you, Yahuwah, will bless the righteous. With favor will you compass him as with a shield. Psalms 5, 7-12. I took out the highlighter on the section which Paul pulled from, but really the entire passage perfectly exemplifies the case so far being made in Romans. The penmanship belongs to David, and really much can be pulled from this reference. You may immediately notice that David worships Yahuwah for the multitude of his mercy. Mercy denotes compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone when it is within that same someone's power to punish them. Why is the mercy bestowed upon him? Because he recognizes his shortcomings in the light of Yahuwah's everlasting righteousness. Perhaps he will furthermore recall how the enemies of David were the people of Elohim. It was no different for Yahushua HaMashiach. He too had enemies, the people of Elohim, the same people. Paul is claiming the Yahudim are still the faithless ones. They are openly rebelling against Yahuwah. The very words they speak derive from a throat that is an open sepulcher. Yehusha said the very thing. The prayer of David is that his enemies would be destroyed due to the multitude of their transgressions. But then look how David ends this section. He defines righteousness in describing those who have put their trust in Yahuwah. Hence, mercy is given. It is the flip of the coin. They can't very well be in rebellion by transgressing the Torah if their trust is in the Most High. Don't overlook that very important detail. Belief always complements action. It is the true righteous, David claims, who will receive Yahuwah's favor. It is they who will receive protection when judgment falls, not the rebellious transgressors. Right, Romans 3, 14-18 Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of Elohim before their eyes. Several more passages are cross-referenced in a rather short and dizzying collage. Psalms 10.7, Proverbs 1.16, Yeshiyahu, that would be Isaiah, 59.7-8, and Psalms 36.1. I'll leave it up to you to look those passages up for yourselves. 
the picture which Paul is painting should be obvious by now, especially when Yerushalayim's coming judgment is brought into the equation, and in as little as a decade, maybe 15 years. His generation was one which described all of these attributes, starting with their treatments of Elohim's only begotten. What is absolutely clear, and Paul keeps hammering this point, there was no fear of Elohim before their eyes. Clearly. Verse 19. Do we not know that whatsoever the law says in the Torah, it speaks in order that all males are stopped and condemns? It does so in all the world by Yahuwah. Paul's logic couldn't be any clearer by this point. The Torah is intended to be a mirror's reflection. How could somebody possibly read it and come to any other conclusion but that we are transgressors and therefore in danger of judgment? Stop mouths is a rather nice way of saying we all need to shut our trap and recognize our desperate need for mercy and forgiveness. That can't happen without repentance. The bizarre, of course, is that we have a righteous high priest and his name is Yahusha. We have an advocate before Yahuwah, and it is not us, and thus forgiveness through the ongoing righteousness of his office. So we're not getting forgiveness because the righteousness of our office. It's purely through the high priest. That is, you know, obviously a Torah idea. Did you catch the hook at the end? The Torah is intended to shut the traps of everyone in all the world, not simply the sons of Yasharel. So why doesn't it then? If salvation as well as judgment comes first and foremost to the Yahudim, based, of course, on their receiving and, tragically, their mishandling of the Torah, then it is clear that, likewise, all nations will be condemned uh, in their wake if they, too, neglect the introspective path of salvation. The intent was always that the Torah would be taught to all the surrounding nations and that the children of Yasharel would be administers of it. Not so, though. It didn't happen. The Yahudim chucked their duties as administrators or administers of the Bezorah when rebelling against the commandments of Elohim, and so Yahuwah was constantly blasphemed among the nations. Psalm 82 is the perfect fleshing out of this ongoing biblical narrative. Uh, and I'll read the whole chapter. Here's what it says in 82, 1 through 8. Elohim stands in the assembly of the mighty. He judges among the Elohim. How long will he judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. Sounds like a planet right there. A wandering star, out of course. I have said, ye are Elohim, and all of you are children of El Elyon. But ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O Elohim, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. My personal opinion is that it is the 70 Elohim over the nations who are being addressed in this passage. Now, some people will disagree with that. That's why I say this is my personal opinion. We are not given their names, but there are several clues as to their divinity, which I shall soon turn to. They were instructed to teach Yahuwah's instructions and righteous living to all humanity, but failed the task miserably so. It's a domino effect, really. They failed to teach the Torah because they were quite unlike Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim, in nature. 
They turned a blind eye to injustice and showed favoritism to the oppressors when uh, when it has been demonstrated that Yahuwah doesn't do that. He judges all, starting with his own. As a result, they were promised to die like mortal men. One major clue as to who we are dealing with, immortals. Another is that Yahushua HaMashiach is called upon to judge the earth according to Yahuwah's standards, which is the Torah, and in doing so, that he would wrestle away their control when inheriting all nations. And so you can easily imagine the wild-eyed jealousy. Not just from the 70 shepherds, though. The Yahudim were seeing guys like Paul wrestle the keys of the kingdom from them when teaching the Torah to the nations in their stead. The nations were rushing in, desiring a taste of Elohim's righteousness, and they didn't like that. Verse 20. Therefore, by the works of the Torah, no flesh is justified in his sight, for through Torah is the knowledge of sin. Uh-oh. Is Paul saying that Torah is a works-based thing and therefore to be avoided at all costs because good works are naughty? I've had these discussions before, and so I'm somewhat certain someone out there will pick up a line here or there in Romans like this one and run with it. I mean, most Christians get it, to a point, that they are sinners in need of forgiveness. But then how many of them return fire when claiming, since it's obvious that I'm incapable of being justified by my works, I might as well snub Yah's holy days and keep to the Roman Catholic Sunday ordinance, and while I'm at it, load up on pork and bacon at their Sunday brunch, of course. Might as well add, have sex with a menstruating woman while you're at it. If you think that's uncalled for, then might I just add that the consummation or consumption of unclean animals is outright disgusting and an abomination to the father. Is it just me or are such attitudes beginning to look more and more like rebellion against Elohim's commands in favor of the doctrines of men? But again, that's probably none of my business. The typical argument that the Torah is done away with is looking worse and worse by the moment, particularly when Paul claims there is no knowledge of sin except through the Torah. And we're only in the third chapter. Understand the action being attempted by so many Christians, then. When doing away with the Torah, or in the very least, the portions which are deemed too inconvenient or impractical for their daily lives, they are attempting to scrub away the consciousness of sin so as not to bother with it. I mean, that's, in my opinion, that that's hitting the, you know, nail on the head right there. Like the Yahudim, they are creating their own doctrines of men, which may be more easily navigated. I'm just going to repeat that one more time. When doing away with the Torah, or in the very least, the portions which are deemed too inconvenient or impractical for their daily lives, and they'll come up with all the theological doctrines to explain why it's ancient and not to be followed, and it was for different people, and blah, blah, blah. They are attempting to scrub away the consciousness of sin so as not to bother with it. You're still hung up on the works of the law part, aren't you? That nobody is justified in doing them. Best to just hang it up altogether then. Well, that much is true. The first part. Not the quip about giving up and living a life of sin. As it turns out, Paul's words line up with the heart of David when writing the following. Hear my prayer, O Yahuwah. Give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness answer me and in your righteousness. And enter not into judgment with your servant 
for in your sight shall no man living be justified. Psalm 143, 1 through 2. Has it ever occurred to anyone that wicked people don't typically see themselves as wicked? How many people go about believing their deplorable actions are perfectly justified? The damnable lie has Christians everywhere believing they are guilt-free and perfectly justified in rebelling against Yahuwah's commands. In fact, they are somehow honoring Elohim in their unclean eating or failing to come before him on his appointed holy days, among other commands. A truly righteous person recognizes his transgressions and then does something about it. He gazes into the image of Yahuwah through the Torah, as Paul says, and with that knowledge, he perceives how far he is removed from the righteousness of the Father, though he is tasked with being an image bearer. That is belief right there. Verses 21 through 22. But now the righteousness of Elohim without the Torah is manifested, being witnessed by the Torah and the prophets. Even the righteousness of Elohim, which is by faith in Yahushua HaMashiach unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. More proof that Paul regards the Torah as no longer valuable or necessary, you tell me. You must be bipolar then. Why can't you read the words directly in front of your face, Noel? <laughs> it says, but now there is righteousness to be manifested without the law. Does it not? LOL. Keep reading. It says the righteousness of Elohim was witnessed by the Torah and the prophets entrusted to keep it. Paul is not the first to witness anything. He's not inventing something new. It's why he keeps referring to to the Tanakh over and over again as an authority to show that his core message relays the very hearts of holy scriptures of, of the earliest written holy scriptures. A few little uh, typo errors in there. Therefore, you cannot tell me that the Torah is contrary to the message of Messiah and in dire need of abandoning. If the Torah and the Tanakh taught Yeshua salvation, then abandoning those books seems counterproductive. If you ask me, its very message is rendered infertile if and when severed and left on its own. What I'm stating there is that the Tanakh always taught the message of salvation, Yeshua, and Paul affirms that. Paul has already made the case that the knowledge of sin occurs through Torah. In this way, nobody is justified by works alone. As you know, many of his contemporaries feel otherwise. I keep repeating this, but it just needs to be said. And Paul does too. He just repeats this over and over and over and over again in as many different ways as he can. The Yahudim saw others as sinners while they themselves were righteous, self-righteous. Ultimately, however, they did not believe. And so their um, hypocr um, hypocritical work system, however they managed it, considering their long record of transgressions, could not save them. When transitioning his argument with the but now statement, Paul is placing a bookmarker in his story, possibly th though from a certain point of view. Salvation may look different now, particularly to the unbelieving Yahudim, but is it really? I'm not convinced Paul thinks so. What can be said as true is that the high priesthood was always intended to function as Yahusha HaMashiach performs it. And furthermore, that salvation has always been and always will be through faith in the salvation, Yeshua, of Yahuwah rather than man. Moshe and the prophets attest to that fact. The change that has taken place is in how righteousness is manifested. Keep reading to the end. Paul claims of Yahusha and the Torah, there is no difference. 
Another way of saying this is that the nations are coming to the righteousness of Yeshua without being raised in the Torah's precepts. The same method of salvation applies to all. It begins from within. Surely, if a nation of circumcised hearts could be shown that the Torah and Yahusha are inseparable from the other, that one is the word and the other the word made flesh, how many would then be prone to forsake the very obedience which Yahusha hearkened to? Verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of Elohim. What you have just read is undoubtedly one of the most memorized verses in the entirety of canon. I, too, have quoted from it often in decades past, and that's a sure problem. The fact that it is included in a very popular evangelizing tract titled The Romans Road only seems to elevate its weight of importance, at least in my mind. Familiarity is a problem because indoctrination would have us look at something for so long and in, and in an angle which we are expected to perceive it that it can become quite impossible to view the same subject in any other light, which I would say of all of Paul's letters, really. You've heard about not being able to teach an old dog new tricks, but here's a slightly different one. As the twig is bent, so inclines the tree. On my part, I had to cut my commentary short yesterday afternoon, soon as I stumbled upon this passage. I then pondered upon its meaning throughout the night, even this morning, as I'm writing this, I sat here for the whereabouts of an hour, not only attempting to digest its meaning, but then asking myself, is it possible to view the all in Romans 3.23 in any other light? Well, I think there is. The key to understanding this quip derives from the likelihood that Paul is still hung up on the impending judgments that hasn't left his, his, uh, his, his uh, peripheral vision. Do recall verse 9, wherein Paul explained that the Torah speaks in order that all mouths are stopped. The all here is further expounded upon when he goes on to say the Torah silences people throughout all the world. Does it really, though? The Torah wasn't exactly shutting up Paul's critics in his day. That then leads us to conclude that he is referring to a future event. The Torah would shut up the unbelieving Yahudim as well as the believing Goy on the day of judgment. How did I come to that conclusion that the all refers to the unbelieving Yahudim and the believing Goy rather than humanity in general? There is a train of thought before us. We'll have to keep reading through to the end of the chapter. But just know this. What Paul is doing, or at least what I believe Paul is doing, is molding the Christian converts for his Yahudim audience into a humble stance. The parashim and the temple controllers are claiming the goy are sinners and therefore incapable of entering the Sinai covenant. Paul is then flipping that worldview on its head when coming to their defense and rebuting, uh, rebutting something as follows. Yes, they are sinners, but unlike you, they know they are sinners. They are discovering the character of Elohim and recognizing, in the face of truth, how far short they fall of his righteousness. If only you could do the same, because you too will have your mouth shut on the day of judgment, only they have done so on a voluntary basis. That right there, I believe, is the all who have sinned and not humanity in general, contextually speaking. We are essentially presented with only two characters in this chapter, the Christian converts 
are the prodigal son whom Yahusha spoke of. Do you recall the parable? Yahusha has already explained that he only came for the lost sheep of Yasharel. Those ten northern tribes were divorced and living in the pigsty. But now, through Yahusha's office as high priest, a piggish people were returning home. And the father couldn't be any happier to embrace them with open arms. The other player in this story is the Yahudim, the elder brother. Most people forget about the elder brother in the parable. He was the one who protested his father's love for the prodigal son, claiming him unworthy. He even refused to take part in fellowship afterwards. And what does that tell us? The irony rarely commented upon is that the eldest may have never left for the pigsty, but he was lost all along without having realized it yet. Thus, the final judgment will reveal that all have sinned. Best to be like the prodigal son and realize that fact now. Leave the pigsty and return to the father. Romans 3.24 Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Mashiach Yahusha. This just goes to complement what I have already been saying. Verse 23 was a mental image of what all kingdom believers hold in common. On the day of judgment, those who have been justified freely by Elohim's grace through the redemption that is found in the atoning blood sacrifices of the high priest, Yahushua HaMashiach, will have no problem saying amongst themselves as well as to the Yahudim, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of Elohim. Another way of saying this is that the perfect character of Elohim is truly beheld, or you might say contrasted, even understood even, when comparing our own lack of worth in the face of his righteousness. The word that is used here is justified. Well, wouldn't you know it, the two English words for just and righteous are exactly the same in Greek. You can see the Greek word there. Uh, why even try to pronounce that? Dikaio, dickery do, I don't know. Being, being justified entails a courtroom vindication and means to be acquitted, quote unquote, or to be pronounced righteous. As we have already seen some number of pages ago, being declared righteous in Hebrew ter terms relates the idea that one is conforming to the custom of the Torah. That was always the understanding in Paul's thinking. Again, do I need to keep reminding you of his mindful audience, the Yahudim? They understood perfectly well the role of a high priest, which is precisely what Paul is inciting when declaring the redemption that is to be found in Yahushua HaMashiach. It was the role of the high priest to be a representative of Elohim on the earth and atone for the sins of the nation. Leviticus 4 details it well. I won't go over that. You will have to read the entire chapter for yourself because the glove fits when taking the ignorance of the Christian converts into account. The context has always been that the people would need to repent upon coming to the knowledge of their sin, or else what good is sacrifice? Yes, the transgressions of the Torah which they committed, correction which are still committed, but did not previously know about are still sins, regardless of whether we agree to it being a sin or not. Sacrifices are of no effect, even if handled by the high priest, should the people refuse to repent on the basis of doctrinal disputes. Such an obstinate heart will be tossed from the land. The his story of Yasharel proves that to be true, and if we're paying attention, Paul has been making the case known. To say one can go about freely sinning and still be saved based upon a spiritual heritage is to counterbalance what the Yahudim had already been claiming about themselves 
that they too would be saved regardless of the transgressions. The epistle to the Hebrews declares the same thing. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, Hebrews 10.26. The writer of Hebrews is calling upon Psalms 119.142. There is no other truth defined for us in Scripture, and so the truth, as we all know by now, is the Torah. Previously, the goyim had no knowledge of what the standard of righteousness might look like. Once discovering the truth, however, one cannot continue on transgressing it or else risk making the sacrifice of no avail. The problem here is that the willful sinner has refused to conform to the custom. I assume by now you've read Leviticus chapter 4. Well, obviously, if not if you're listening live. Does the doctrine of Hebrews connect with the one doctrine given to us by uh, Yahuwah at Sinai? I'd say so. It would be a truly odd thing indeed if Paul is declaring the Christian converts to be declared in a heavenly court as having conformed to the standards of righteousness via the Torah in their belief, but then tells them not to bother behaving accordingly. In the very least, the writer of Hebrews would disagree with him. And yet, that is how Christians claim Paul is instructing them all the time. They have been pronounced righteous, and so they don't have to conform to anything beyond what their own denomination or sense of nationalism informs them. I say nationalism because, you know, we, we define our faith Christianity by being American, right? Those individuals are like a child who receives the reward from his parents before the task is finished and then proves not to have a heart to go through with it, seeing as how they have already received, been offered payment in full. We shouldn't expect it to go well for the uncircumcised heart in the end. Romans 3, 25 through 26. Whom Elohim has set forth to be a, a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of Elohim, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which is in the faith of Yehusha HaMashiach. Christians tell me all the time how Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim, set up a system designed to fail and that Yahushua came to save us from it. Ridiculous. If that were even remotely true, then Yahuwah's testimony as well as his entire character would be thrown into serious inquiry. The idea is constantly put forward that the Torah was a works-based religion and incapable of achieving salvation. Perhaps they are confusing the guiding instructions in righteous living with the false testimony presented from Paul's accusers. Why the son would come to criticize the very thing his father put in place is beyond me. Paul is declaring nothing of the sort. He isn't telling the Yahudim their Torah sucks and needs to be abolished. Quite the opposite. The Torah was manifested at Sinai in order that Yahushua HaMashiach may bring it to fullness at a later time. Salvation has always come through faith in Yahuwah upholding his end of the covenant. As you can see here, commentary upon the high priesthood continues. The Yahudim knew very well what propitiation entailed. It is the action of appeasing Elohim, or a random Elohim, depending on your nation, as many surrounding religions had systems of relegating the said appeasement. Though the Yahudim may prefer atonement instead, which is where the high priest comes in. 
we are expected to have faith that Yahushua HaMashiach has atoned for sins and then live that faith statement out accordingly. Point is, the Torah was always set up in such a way that the transgressor would require faith in moving forward after having been declared righteous through the remission of past sins. And look at how Paul describes the sins that are past. Obviously, the definition of sin has never changed. Forbearance is another fascinating word. It is a refraining from the enforcement of something such as a debt, right, or obligation that is due. Today, forbearance is when your mortgage servicer or lender allows uh, you to temporarily pay your mortgage at a lower payment or even pause paying your mortgage. What's more, it appears as though for Paul, the eternal purpose of Yahushua's sacrifice, especially where the prior events are concerned, are far more worthy of being highlighted than his public display on the tree. What seems apparent then is that the atoning sacrifices were deemed a forbearance by Elohim until the debt was finally paid in full. Yahuwah had always determined that his son would not only be the sacrifice for sinners, but the one who would establish his righteousness to the nations and make his name known. That means nothing has changed. The Torah abides. Well, technically, Yahushua has been hung from a tree in a precise moment of his story. That was a manifested reality. But Yahushua HaMashiach is our high priest over the one Torah of Elohim and no other. Verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what kind of Torah? Of works? Nay, but by a Torah of faith. Wait, did Paul just mention two separate Torahs? If the Torah of works is the one we have in the Old Testament, mainly the first five books of canon, then where is the Torah of faith laid out? I can't find one. We know there cannot possibly be two Torahs, as Yahuwah has already told us in Exodus 12 that there was one Torah for the children of Yasharel, as well as the Sojourner. If Paul is claiming to, then he disagrees with Yahuwah Elohim, as well as Yahusha. So what gives? For starters, the mere notion that anyone would boast in their salvation by way of personal merit is a ludicrous notion in any epoch of his story and is here expunged. Even at Sinai and afterwards, the priesthood was required for sacrificial sin offerings. To say that the sinner was required to show up with an offering is missing the point. He was expected to repent, but even still he was guilty of sin and incapable of, incapable of doing anything else about it. Forgiveness was completely out of his hands. It was up to the intermediary between Elohim and humanity, the high priest or the priesthood, but also the transgressor's faith required a belief which would number him among the righteous. That is what Paul is saying. There is no such thing as a Torah of works. It is a figment of one's imagination, a doctrine of men a false bizarre which cannot be found anywhere within the pages of Holy Scripture, having never existed to begin with. So why boast in it? Really, to stop bragging about the shape of your penis because you do look stupid when doing it. Not, the, not that boasting itself is bad. Boasting is good, so long as it is directed in the right direction, heavenward. The person who stood around Mount Sinai with a penitent heart truly understood that his only boasting would not be in himself or the people whom Yahuwah wished to set apart from the surrounding nations, but in the righteousness of Elohim and his penchant for forgiveness. If anyone of that generation believed they contained within the, themselves the capacity to plague Egypt 
and then part the Red Sea so that he or she or they might cross over from death to life, based, of course, upon their own divine merit or what have you, then he or she or they would be an ignoramus indeed. Verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the works of the Torah. And see, it is verses like such uh, as this one, when completely removed from Paul's own peripheral vision, that the perverse and apostate will proclaim, woohoo, I'm living the law of faith like a greasy couch potato past the pork rinds. All Paul is attempting to do is point out how far off course the Yahudim had strayed and then help to autocorrect the situation, just as Yahushua had done. What's more, the we statement has my interest. It seems as though Paul is saying that the Church of Rome, consisting of both Goy and Yahudim, agree with his sentiments. They all walked their faith out in response to what Yahushua HaMashiach had done throughout the annals of history, as well as their own generation, what he would continue to do in the following decade and beyond. I think we're nearing the end here. Verse 29, even though it says verse 20. Is he the Elohim of the Yahudi only? Is he not also of the other nations? Yes, of the other nations also. Connecting the dots and relating the creator of, of heaven and earth to the Elohim of the 70 nations as well as his set-apart people, Yashrael, should be conspicuous in and of itself. But you would be surprised. I often encounter rebuttals from those who insist Yahuwah is a completely different Elohim from their God in Christianity, as deities are concerned, and should altogether be avoided. There are those who will go so far as to claim Yahuwah is Satan, and that the Torah was a covenant which he tricked the children of Yashorel into. That should give someone the chills just reading that. It certainly did me writing that. On a slightly separate note, you're probably aware that there are satanic rock records out there. Well, it's satanic doctrines such as this one, which takes the icing on the cake. On closer introspection, it should frighten anyone to gaze upon the character of Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim of Yashorel, as revealed in the Torah, and then conclude obedience is to be avoided, let alone evil. Treating Protestant or Roman Catholic Jesus as the person who has freed us from the shackles of the Torah is confusing Plato's doctrine of the demiurge with reality. Don't do that. What I have just described is not exactly the angle that Paul is arguing against here. Paul is defending Elohim from the opposite side of the spectrum as we who recognize the, truth, uh, the Torah as truth now find ourselves doing. For example, Christianity today will often claim that being obedient to Yahuwah's Torah is akin to spitting on the cross and falling from grace and all that. You've heard it all before. Preposterous. Bullet points such as that one was never once a throwing punch between Paul and his critics. More than likely, those false accusations mentioned in Acts were still floating around in Paul's consciousness. In making such connections, he is attempting to put the fire out from those who blatantly lied about his doing away with the Torah. Deuteronomy 13 warns of anyone entering the camp who would lead the children of Yashorel to another Elohim. That is why Paul is reminding his critics, no, I am leading humanity to the same Elohim which the sons of Yashorel as well as the, as the sojourner meets at Sinai. And he couldn't very well do that by tossing out the Torah, could he? Verse 30, seeing it is one Elohim, 
which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Oh no, not again. It's rather dizzying, keeping track of who was circumcised and uncircumcised and which of the two are justified and when and why. Well, which is it then? Are we to be circumcised or not, Paul? Why can't you be forthright and give us a straight answer? Always beating around the bush, Paul is, playing both sides, just like Paul, teaching his doctrine of lawlessness again. This must be his coming out of the closet moment. The Yahudim were right to claim you were teaching against the commands. Paul couldn't deny the truth, apparently. He was the prophet spoken about in Deuteronomy 13. Go ahead, Paul. Tell us how you really feel about the Torah. Oh, wait. And then we read in verse 31. Do we then make void the Torah by faith? Never. Yea, we established the Torah. Nice rebound. I knew Paul would come through in the end. For a moment there, if we're being honest, I thought he might be slipping over to the dark side again. But no, he kept to the light, despite what so many Christians claim of him. Notice how he employed the word we again. Another clue that the Church of Rome fell in agreement with his statement. The Church of Rome consisted of both Yahudim and Goy, and none of them did away with the Torah conclusively. Quite the opposite, actually. The mere thought that they do away with the Torah caused them all to stand up and protest and cry in unison, never. Indeed, Yahushua's role as their high priest only managed to establish the eternal reality of the Torah. Apparently, as it pertains to voiding the Torah, it is only the Yahudim falsely accusing them who received the memo. More like projecting, if you ask me. Had Paul been arguing in favor of some other Torah from the Torah which Moshe received when addressing his accuser's claims, then do try and help me out with the deductive reasoning. The Yahudim were claiming that Paul had done away with the Torah of Moshe, in which Paul responded, why would you think something like that? Of course I haven't done away with the very different Torah from that of Moshe, which I'm proclaiming. What sort of argument is there in that? None whatsoever. It is a losing argument on every front. He would have only been confirming their false accusations and proving himself to be the threat warned about in Deuteronomy 13. From a slightly different angle, Many would have relate, uh, relayed upon the emphasis in Paul's teachings that Elohim would be gracious to those returning into the fold and find valid cause for concern. The reason being is that the idea of lawlessness might be fostered in the hearts of those who had a ten, uh, tenderness towards unrighteous living. First of all, thank Yahuwah for his abounding mercy. Had it not been for his grace and penchant for forgiveness, then none of us listening right now or reading this would have made it this far on this journey. And that is a fact, certainly not myself. How many in the Church of Rome chose to be circumcised before his letter was written or later in life, I wonder? As a walking out of their faith, that is. It is, after all, the Torah of faith. I suppose not all of them. I wouldn't know, as I wasn't there to lift up each person's toga and inspect for myself. Which, by the way, you guys will never have to worry about if you meet me in person. I will not do that. Perhaps that is why it is so important to recognize that Elohim is a righteous and holy judge, blameless in his decisions. Those who have stored up riches versus those who have stored up wrath in their hearts will be exposed in the end. What can undoubtedly be said is true on the day when every mouth is shut is that Yahuwah alone will be found as the only participants who perfectly upheld his end of the covenant. 
That is why the Torah of faith is so important to live by, because the Torah of works will fall by the wayside. Here is the pressing question for every soul who has boasted in the Torah of faith through the agency of Yahushua HaMashiach. Now that you have begun to glean a deeper knowledge of his Torah, what is stopping you from taking that next step of obedience? I think that's it for this week. Every single week that I, I write this, I try to, I'm really trying to cut it down and it goes longer every week. So maybe next week we'll end at 825 and the week after that, 830. I don't know. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. I hope it was clear to everybody and not confusing. And I have been enriched going through this study myself and really struggling to understand his words. And, um, and hopefully this is a blessing to you guys as well. We do have a few minutes before I, uh, I haven't even checked to see if Michael is here tonight. I think, um, I'm not seeing Michael tonight. I hope he's okay. So I'm curious if anybody wants to try to check up on him because I'm missing my other partner in our Genesis study. And I don't know if I'll do it without him. So uh, while I'm here, if someone wanted to check in on him, that'd be really great. Does anybody have any thoughts on uh, anything we went over, chapters one, two, or three? Hey, Noel, I was thinking um, when you were talking that, um, you know, sitting in church, I knew that I was a sinner. Like, I remember very vividly um, an altar call, you know, Baptist kind of moment. And I knew. I knew sitting there that I was a sinner. And at that moment, like I began trying to do good, um, you know, and I do, I, I, I wrote down in my notes, like do good in air quotes. Um, but it would have been so liberating if the pastor had called me in after that and said, Hey, look, you know, um, we're happy that you are having this repentant heart. And like, this is what you have to do, right? Like follow Torah. And I don't remember what he said to me, but like that would have been so liberating because I really, the whole time after that, that we were in the church, I felt, I still felt like a sinner. And I thought, this isn't right. Like, how do I get out of this? Um, so I don't know. I, I know a lot of people think that Torah is so binding and all of those words that they throw around, but I I feel more liberated now. And that was um, 17 and a half years ago. Um, you know, and it's only been a year that I have felt finally, like I finally have an answer. Yeah. I, so before I, before I add to that or give my own perspective, does anybody else have anything on that? I mean, yeah. yeah like I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, so I was just thinking, <laughs> so there's time, there's always a delay. Um, the same thing, like I when you were um, talking in regards to like about the sinner, and it reminded me of Luke in Luke 18, where Yahushua is actually talking about, you know, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee and he says in, in um, verse 10, he's like, two men went up to the temple to pray and one Pharisee and the other 
a tax collector and the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Elohim, I thank you that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. And he, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes and all I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his, his eyes to the heavens and was being his breast saying, Elohim, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. And everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's the scripture that came to my mind when you were reading that, what Paula was saying. And I just really appreciated that you had brought in the Psalms that um, Paul was referring to, because I think a lot of people miss that, that Paul was actually quoting from the the Tanakh. And um, and I really uh, appreciated that you added that into your writings here. Somebody else wanted to say something? Yeah. Just whenever, just speaking on that, like, because you're, I think you're on page 68 when you're talking about that, but just the the crazy thing is going to church every day and, you know, sitting in church, you never really, like she said, you never felt like you got anywhere. But then once me and my wife started actually following Torah and our family started like reading the actual scriptures and say, instead of just like listening to someone else tell us these scriptures, it started just opening our eyes and just breaking down walls and it actually made you have to start facing yourself and the, the, the your sinful nature and the things you've done. And just, it actually kind of started shedding light to those things and you could start seeing the things happening in your life. There's a, a scene in Alice's adventures in Wonderland that describes kind of what I think you were just, what you guys have been saying. And it's where she goes into the, the 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 river of tears and she comes out and there's the dodo there with the the like bill the lizard and all the different animals and it's the caucus race which it was kind of political commentary but it was like this idea of running around in circles and circles and circles and they weren't getting dry and nothing was getting accomplished and that's how i feel about the church experience and i think a lot of us can probably relate to that if you have come out of the church in order to pursue the father um you know, you, you realize that the, the, the church system is set up in such a way is to keep you, um, well, in my opinion, it's, it's to, to keep you unclean in a lot of ways, but, you know, keep you from seeing the deeper truth and, um, you know, really understanding what to do with your uh, sins and what you're supposed to repent of and so on and so forth. And um, it's actually a level that's pretty shocking how it's set up that way. Now, in my case, when I when I came over to Torah, I originally saw it, and I still see it this way, that I was presented with an opportunity. It's like, yeah, it's like, okay, you, you say you love me. Well, here's an opportunity to be more obedient to, to me. You don't have to be obedient. You can turn away from this if you want, but if you would like to hear it as here's the path. Um, growing up, I, I, I had no idea. It didn't even hit me until like the last year or two that I was praying from the heart of Leviticus, even though I had never read Leviticus. I was never instructed to, never told to, never encouraged to. I was told it was boring and you know keep out of it, and not for me, and so on and so forth. In the book of Leviticus, um, you know, most people when they when they hear many Christians, they they will be get cocky when they hear that uh, that I am Torah pursuant, and they're like, oh well, you must have not read the Bible then, you know that kind of stuff, and you know they'll start saying like, well, there's no temple, so how are you going to be for, how are you going to be forgiven for your sins? You can't sacrifice. Well, here's the thing: 
what they what they don't understand is I encourage people go to the book of Leviticus and show me where there is a sac sacrifice for sins for conscious sin. Uh, there's actually this is a whole study in of itself uh, it would be for a whole another night. But there are three types of sacrifices in the book of Leviticus uh, for the, the Le Levitical system. One is um, a uh, for the Levites themselves sacrificing so that the Levites can have something. The other is, uh, which is most of the sacrifices in there is Thanksgiving offerings, meaning that you love Yahuwah so much that you want to go spend time with him at the tabernacle, dine, you bring the, the spices, you bring the meats, you, you cook it up, you sit there and you eat in his presence, and you just want to do that to be, you know, that, that's one of the offerings. The only other, the th other third is for unconscious sin. Guys, there's no, there's no sacrifice for conscious sin. Okay. There's no sacrifice. And this is what they don't want you to know. For Yahuwah, it was always he wanted a penitent heart. Like you go out and you consciously sin. Uh, you, you repent of that and you don't sin anymore. This is what Yahushua said to everyone. Go and sin no more. That's what he would tell people. That's what Yahuwah always wanted. And so... Um, and you know the, the role of the high priest was as well as to do this uh, sacrifice for the 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 sins of all Israel and the 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 um, the unknown sins, right? The unconscious sins. Well, so I would pray that as a teenager. There were two prayers that I had, really interesting that he answered later in life. I prayed repeatedly for years. I I would look at the word firmament, and 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 where. Like Peter talks about waters above and stuff, and I I prayed and I would be like, what does that mean? What is what does firmament mean? Can you answer it to me? And oh, the other one was what is the great deception? I prayed for that a lot. I would be like, I don't want to be deceived. Can you show me? Because when the great deception happens, I don't want to be deceived. Please show me. But the the most important prayer uh, that I prayed over and over again, because as um, as um, Katie was staying in here. That you know she would always be, uh, you know, repentant of her sins in church, which is so much like Katie. Katie's a wonderful woman, very you know, very heartfelt woman. And but I would pray that to the Father, I'd be like, I want to repent of my sins. I want to be sorry for what I did. So please reveal to me the sins that I don't know I'm committing. And man, that was that's the heart of Leviticus right there. And Yah answered those. He answered them all in time. And um, so all that to say is that. What the Torah is, it's not we, we we don't stand here and go when these new people are are waking up to the truth and go, well, you know, you're you don't you're not you're not on the right calendar. You uh you know you're you're doing sunset to sunset and that not like you know, sunrise to sunrise or whatever it is, you know, and everyone's got their little quirks and you go through and it's like, you know, Yah's not going to bless you unless if you're believing what I'm you know, it's like all of us here, what this comes down to, what the Torah is, it's an introspection of ourselves. We want to look, you know, we we read it because we love the Father, Yahuwah, so much. We want to know who he is, what he looks like, not create an, you know, an idol in our image, but but see him in his image and conform to that. And that takes time. It's not something that happens overnight. Um, I think what's tragic in Paul's letters is that the same temple controllers came into Christianity, they took it over, and they they wrestled it away from the people, just like it happened in Judaism. So that's enough of my rant. Now, because of the fact that I do not see Michael here, 
Um, and his wife, Stephanie, is also not here tonight. So I'm a little concerned. Uh, I hope they're okay. I haven't heard from either one of them all day. Uh, usually Michael and I are in contact all Sabbath as we're preparing, and I, I, I didn't hear from him all day. Um, I did see him on our Discord. Um, uh, I did see him on here, though, earlier this morning. So maybe they're just caught up in a Sabbath group or something. But anyways, with that being said, I'm not going to be going on to Genesis without him. So does anyone else have anything else you want to talk about based on Paul, Romans? Hey, Noel, can I ask you real quick? Um, you say that a lot, that there's no sacrifice for... Um... Is it conscious then? Is that what you said? Right. Like if there's, if yeah. you go out in the book of Leviticus, if you go and murder someone, you go commit adultery. Um, I don't see any sacrifices for those. Like, you know, if you do these things, this is what you, it's like, you've gone out and consciously sent it away that a lot of those are, you know, you get the death penalty for. Um, right. So I've heard you say that a lot and I, I didn't ever quite understand it. I always think I need to write that down and ask Noel about it, but the way you described it tonight, like I, I finally get it. Like it clicked. I started panicking um, about, I started panicking about now, maybe I'm totally wrong off base and there really are sacrifices for conscious sin. If so, please kindly show me. I could, you know, I, I'll humbly take it. What I'm saying is that I started panicking looking through uh, Leviticus and in, in the, the laws, like a couple of years ago, after I'd been in Torah a couple of years and I just assumed there was sacrifices for all these things. And I'm like, I can't find them. Where are they? And most of the sacrifices in the temple system were for um, just out of a reverence and love for Yahuwah. And so you can imagine uh, why in Isaiah, his writing things like, I'm sick of your sacrifices. I'm sick of your Sabbaths and your new moons and all these. Like, I, I don't I, this make me want to vomit and puke thinking about them because you guys aren't repentant. You're not you're just checking off the boxes. You're not doing anything. You don't actually want to get to know me. You don't want to be with me. Do you want to love me? Um, and so, yeah, that's always what it's been about. Um, it, it rang true too. I, I don't know. Maybe this is a theme for our, us today, but when we were doing the tour portion this morning, um, Adam went through the, I don't know what week it was, 43, 44, something like that. And, but he read from first Adam and Eve when, um, uh, Cain, you know, has found out that he killed Abel and it struck me because I, I guess I hadn't read that part in first Adam and Eve, but it says very clearly, like it was found out and then he didn't have a repentant heart. So it wasn't like he was like, Oh my gosh, I did. I killed my brother, you know, but it was the fact that he didn't have a repentant heart. He didn't in that moment, even after he was found out, like he still was just so stiff necked and now yeah in fact it's been commented on that the language use uh, in the hebrew was suggestive that cain would would was implying that he would just keep on doing it like he wasn't going to it wasn't that he just murdered abel his brother he's like he he'll kill he'll off somebody else if he needs to yeah kind of reminds me of just like when it came to just joining torah it went from being like what do i need to do to asking what do you need from me like what do you what do you want me to do from like the father if that makes sense like it was no longer about me and my self-preservance but more of what's what's what am i supposed to be you know what do you need me to do father and so what do i think i need to do no that's, that's yeah, a good, that, oh who's his go ahead no. 
that that was big for me too you know like like not my will but your will like i never understood that when they would talk about that or when they would quote messiah saying that um until i came to a better understanding of torah like like this is not about me and what i want to do i think somebody else said that earlier today too or maybe it was thursday night like it's not about how we view it anymore it's it's what what does he want us to do i want to do his will not mine Right. So that's an interesting, this is where you bring the feast into it. The the seven uh, high holy days of Yahuwah is that they're very, very different from the holy days, the holidays of the worldly system, which are ultimately the worship of the self, uh, particularly birthdays. And I, you know, I'm not going to come down on people who want to, you know, celebrate that their child is a year older. Um, but you guys know what I mean about the, the it's, it's the, the consumerism and, me, 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 and I'm going to get things, and I'm, you know, this is all about. And with Yahuwah, though, it's he asks us to come before him on these seven days, these high holy days, and they're like they're all about repentance. I mean, the Day of Atonement is a classic one. That's the the the, the big one for you know. You wear sackcloth. You put you know dust on your head. You you know you don't eat food. You mourn. You weep for your sins. I mean, that is purely Torah, guys. And that, that is what he calls us to of, of, I have fallen short of your righteousness. And what do you need from, you know, what do you want? Yeah. yeah. What can I do to, to honor, to please you, to worship you the way you want to be uh, worshiped. And just the answer I was asked, uh, Pamela asked, will you repeat for those who might be confused for someone who has committed conscious sin, what they can do if they are convicted over it. Okay. So you guys, you guys either knew in advance I'll give both scenarios. You guys knew in advance uh, that something was sin. And you said, you know what? It, you know, I'm going to go out and do it anyways. All right. It, it just get, you know, with your, all roads lead to, you know, they say like all political discussions lead to Nazis. <laughs> the other, the other side is always the Nazis. Well, you know, like all like morality discussions always lead to porn. Right. And it's something like that. Like, you know, it, you, you're going to go, um, sin transgress the law by looking at you know uh somebody else's nakedness you go out and do it uh is there a sacrifice for that well what Yahuwah wants is you to repent he wants you to say you know uh i have fallen short of your righteousness i have transgressed your law have mercy on me forgive me for what i've done and repenting means you literally turn away from that you don't go like you know you don't give it 24 or 48 hours and go back to it again. You know, you, you walk away from it and you realize it. I, I just want to say that when I was struggling with that addiction, Oh, it was so long ago, but anyway, I was uh, just determined to sabotage the, what the sabotage I was doing, you know, sabotage the sabotage. And I decided, you know, as soon as I had, um, as soon as I was done doing my thing, I would just, instead of feeling like punching myself in the head, I would just go read Psalms. And I did that every single time, and then it became untenable to do the, the bad thing, and it became more um, of a blessing and more fun, actually, to to read Psalms or to read the Bible. I just kind of displaced the energy with the right kind of energy. You know what I mean? And and also the uh, I wanted to mention that in Satanism the highest holiday the most evil holiday is your own birthday, and that you're supposed to treat it that way. 
Um, if I, I don't, I was just going to try to jump in <laughs> uh, while there's a pause. Um, I just kind of go back to when you were saying, I, I, for me, it would have helped me so much more. I've been in the Christian church. I think not only the way the New Testament is translated, but also the way um, the New Testament is taught, that we're not really focused in the Old Testament at all. Um, these words of, you know, do good works, you know, we, you think, oh, well, I'm a good person. So it's, it pretty much leaves it up to the Christian believer to make up their own decision of what that means. What, what is righteousness? What is wickedness? What is evil? They think, oh, those murderers, those wicked people, when they don't realize breaking the Sabbath falls in, in, in the context, in the line of what evil is, what is wickedness. And doing good works are doing those things that Yah would have us do, keeping his feasts and keeping you know, his, his ways in general. And there's such a disconnect because of the way it's translated and then the way it's not taught correctly. And when I you know, came to that realization, starting to, you know, dig deeper into the definitions of the words, cross-referencing back to the Old Testament. Then it became so clear, and it's so obvious, but it's totally obfuscated in the Christian church. There's like a false moral structure. I've just, ever since I started seeing things the way everyone here sees it, that I recognize, I feel like I've been liberated from the, from that false moral structure. And which is like another kind of Catholic guilt, you know. It's it's very. Uh, you feel like you're you're always wrong all the time, and and then you see people who are gotten away with way more than you, who are above you in the church, and and it's just really disappointing and confusing, completely. Over and out. Well, that's why it's really important, um, just like Noel was saying, that um, we, it's when you're doing a conscious sin, like you do teshuva, that you turn from it, you repent and you turn away from it. And that's what, um, even with David, even though he had committed a conscious sin with Bathsheba, um, you know, Yahuwah forgave him because he, he felt really bad, like he repented for what he had did. Um, I just wanted to um, touch, uh, when I was studying um, Romans as well, is that I think this is where a lot of people get kind of tripped up in with Paul too, is that that in Romans, and I, and there is a, a couple in 1 Corinthians, that Paul is literally talking about six, six different types of law. And, um, and in, in the English translation, it kind of just always talks about, like as they would refer that, I think, in the Christian church as just the law. But, you know, in, in um, Romans 3, 7 and different types of parts of Rome, uh, Romans that he talked about the law of God, there's the law of sin, there's the law of sin and death, and then there's the law of the spirit um, of faith, and then there's the law of righteousness, and then there's the law of Messiah. So I think that um, that's where some of the believing people get really, they think that he's just literally talking about the law in general, that it's God's law, and that it all pertains to the Torah and that's why it's all done away with. But if you really read through um, it really slowly, you, you understand that he's talking about different types of laws as you're following in him in, in Romans, as you're following along with him, that it's not just the law of, of the Torah that he's speaking of. It's certain specific laws that he's referring to. 
Yeah, that's correct. There's uh, six he refers to in the Book of Romans. And then in, in the entirety of his letters together, there is seven. There's one other law. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. I can't remember what book it's from. Um, but yeah, so the Book of Romans mentions a whopping big six different laws that, but they all, you know, kind of, uh, I guess what I need to do is kind of sit down and kind of explain through each of them. I kind of purposely didn't. Because I wanted to show when he talks about the law of sin, which I think he talks about that one also in Galatians versus the law of faith and so on, that he's he's kind of he's talking about the law based on a reflection of Torah, either from righteousness or unrighteousness perspective and so on and so forth.